Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We're actually going to look at three full chapters tonight, so put on your Bible hats. I'd remind you that the great biblical scholar, archaeologist F.W. Albright, said that every time a shovel is turned in Israel, part of the Bible is verified. One of the reasons that these lists that we have here in the book of Joshua become important is as we unveil the archaeological evidence in the Holy Land, which we'll be traveling to in September. Uh, Pastor Chet and I are going to be co-leading a trip. We have about 140 people going on that trip thus far, so three full buses. Uh, We are going to be traveling to the lands that are described here in this incredible book that is the conquests of Joshua. And so we begin tonight with chapter 10, uh, and we'll look back a little bit just very briefly as we realize that what they had done is rather than seeking the Lord, rather than trusting the Lord, uh, they had gone through a series of things at Jericho first, and then at Ai, and now at Gibeon and Gilgal. Uh, as they fought these battles, the times that they've relied on the Lord, they've been successful. The times that they've not relied on the Lord, they have not been successful. That is a truth for every believer. And so that story now continues for three chapters as we see the conquest of the land. Now remember that part of the promise that was given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and now is going to be the reality of Joshua, is this land. And that land was described in detail It is the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Its boundaries were given as from the great river, which is in Egypt, all the way to the river Euphrates, which is in modern-day Iraq. But it includes this land that we call today the Holy Land. But there were some conditions, and that conditions were that the children of Israel must conquer that land. And if you remember, Moses did some conquering. But he never entered into the promised land because he sent these spies. The spies went, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a good report. But they believed the multitude. The multitude said, now we can't go in there. There's giants in the land. They're going to kill us. We're going to stay right here. And so we'll read the story of this conquest now as Joshua and Caleb and the children of Israel really begin to take the ground that God had given them. And so the question begins tonight, are you ready to take the ground that God has given you? We just went through a wonderful Easter week, and God has given us the land. The question is, are we going to possess the land? You see, the land is a guarantee, but the possession is in obedience. And so let's look at these chapters tonight. We're going to not cover every single word because I don't think you need to hear your pastor speak a whole bunch of Hebrew names that you have no way of identifying whether I said them right or not. And so we'll look at many of them, but we won't cover all of them, but we will cover 
uh, the context of every single one of these chapters. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us as a people. Uh, You have given us a land, and it is great, and it's mighty, and it's overflowing with milk and honey. And Lord, we want to possess that land, and so we want to be obedient to your word. So as your word speaks to us tonight, would your Holy Spirit impart it as truth? Would we grow into the image of Jesus? Thank you for loving us. Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom. Thank you for the time that we get to spend together in your word. Use it now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You might remember that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're reminded that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the Apostle Paul, in that New Testament context, gave us the reason why. Because you can't mix the devil and Jesus, is the simplest understanding. There's no place that there's a connection between Belial, which is the devil, and Christ, the Savior. You, You can't put good and evil together. They don't mix. They're like oil and water. You can stir them all day long, and at the end, the oil is going to rise right back to the surface. They are not compatible. And so God gave a very specific directive to the Jewish people to conquer the land. One of the common mistakes that New Testament believers make, which we are, especially people in our time frame, is trying to literalize this conquest so that now you and I need to go out and we need to slay the Amalekites that live next door to us. That is not the picture here. This is a very specific group of people given a very specific group of tasks. And in that sense, it is not applicable to you today. It was given to Israel. It was given to them alone. It was a task for them to do. And it was a task in a very specific place. So don't confuse these Old Testament battles with a New Testament believer's life that is supposed to be governed by the love of God because we've received that in grace through Christ Jesus. He is nowhere in the New Testament commanded any New Testament believer to go slay your enemies. That was an Old Testament principle for Old Testament times. So be very, very careful about making literal something that applied to Israel and Israel alone during Old Testament times. Will we have battles? Yes. But those battles are going to be primarily spiritual now. And they're going to be fought in the spirit and with spiritual tools. And so God's people are still supposed to be separated, but we're separated by holiness and righteousness and spirit-led living. Amen? And now it came to pass, verse 1, Joshua 10. That Adonai Zadok, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly utterly destroyed it. And what he had done to Jericho and its king, and what he had done to Ai and its king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. And that they greatly feared because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. But because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. And therefore Adonai Zadok, the king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoakam the king of Hebron, and Paran, the king of Jarmoth. And you can see why we're not going to do this all night tonight. <laughs> and Japhia, the king of Lachesh, and Debrir, 
the king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua, with the children of Israel. And therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, and the king of Lachash, and the king of Eglon, all gathered together and went up with their armies and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. Now the reason that we look at this passage the way we look at it is we can rest assured in what God has promised us. God had promised this land, and so there, there's going to be a myriad of kings and a myriad of kingdoms that are going to be mentioned in these chapters. The central truth of all of this is this land belonged to God. When God said, and he repeats this through the prophet Joel, that this land is my land speaking of himself, and I have given it to Israel as an, as an inheritance, that is exactly what he meant. And so this land, though inhabited by people from the city of Gibeon, by, inhabited, by it being inhabited with Amorites and Amalekites, the Jebusites, these people that were in the land of Canaan when the Israelites arrived, though they lived there, it was not their land. It was God's land, and he gave it to the Jewish people. And so God gives them this task of going in and taking the land. He's, they're going to do it by force. And so these four Canaanite kings had, a, had aligned themselves together and taking five city-states, and God was going to have to give them great victory to conquer these cities. Now, they'd been in the land for a long time. One of the key things that we can learn from this is that the enemies of God have been in the land for a long time. They are entrenched. One of the great things that we see in our culture today is how greatly entrenched ungodliness is in our nation, in our culture. Though we have Christian moorings, we are by not any shape of the imagination a Christian nation. We have some Christian principles that are underlying our government and our formation of our government. We have had some great godly leaders, but there's a whole lot of heathens in the land. And so you are going to have the same type of situation wherever you go. The land really belongs to you because you're one of God's kids, and the earth and the fullness of it belongs to the Lord. Amen? So in that sense, the whole world is your oyster. The problem is it's inhabited by Amalekites. There are Jebusites in the land. And so not everything's going to go smoothly. Your job isn't always going to be, oh, you just go in and you say, well, I've been praying for you and your boss fires you anyway. <laughs> the land is ruled, it's governed, it has people living in it that don't want to give it up, even though it ultimately is God's and he's given it to his people, they're not going to surrender. So in that same way, you're going to see some of the same things that the children of Israel saw. You're going to have battles. You're, you're going to have to fight to be a believer at work. You're going to have to fight to be a believer at school. You're going to have to fight to be a believer in your community. You're going to have to fight to elect people who will vote in righteous laws and living. You're going to have to fight for those things. There are going to be battles in your neck of the woods as well. The problem with the children of Israel is they had not always fought, and they had certainly not always fought God's way. They had fought in their flesh, and in fact, when they got into the most trouble, remember what it was for, 
they failed to hear the voice of the Lord. And so when they stopped talking to God, they ended up getting in trouble. That's a word for you tonight. When you stop talking to God, you are going to get into trouble. But here's the good news. God can use even your blunders for his good. Amen? That's that Romans 8.28 principle. All things working together towards the good or for the good to them who love God. Remember, this doesn't apply to non-believers. It's for believers to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. All things work together for the good. It doesn't say all things work together for the good. and It doesn't say all things are good to everyone. It says for God's people, even your blunders can turn out to be blessings. When you surrender them to him. And so that's what we have seen thus far in the conquest of the land. They've taken these blunders, they've learned from them, and now things are getting a little bit better. The Gibeonites call out, remember they've made a peace pact with these people because they got hoodwinked. Verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants and come up to us quickly and save us. Help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. And so Joshua descended from Gilgal because he had to. He had given these people the right to live there. He'd made a peace pact with them. And he and all the people of war with them and all the mighty men of valor. And so here the Gibeonites turn this burden over and Joshua's doing what he should be doing. He's trusting the Lord and he's making well. But here's the crazy thing. When you look at this particular group of people, you find unbelievers who have a better grasp of God's character and nature than the believers. That is a sad thing. The Gibeonites, the Amorites, these people actually seem to have a better understanding of what God will do and how God works. And so they're saying, look, we know your God is for you. It is sad when people who don't know the Lord go, I know your God is for you, but we don't know our God is for us. We're wondering, I don't know if God's going to take care of it. You know, we wonder, don't we do that? It's like you got unbelievers. Aren't you a Christian? Don't you believe in the God that created heaven and earth? Yeah, but he can't help me. That's because we don't ask God and we don't trust God. Oh, we believe in our minds that he exists, but we lack the essential element and that is faith. That God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And so learn from this group of people. We do not want to ever be compared to the world in a way that the world looks more spiritual than the church does. Learn that lesson and let God use you for his glory. Notice Joshua's call out now to the Lord. Very important. Joshua's starting to get it. He's not going to make that same mistake. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Joshua is finally believing God's promises. 
It does you no good. Hear me very well. It does you no good to read your Bible and not believe what it says. And that is both ways, when it's a promise of the Lord or when it's a warning from God. doesn't matter which direction. You don't get to pick and choose. Well, I like the promises of God, but I don't like the warnings of God. The truth is, God's word is God's word. And what God says, God means. And what God means, we should do. And if we don't do that, then we're actually not acting on all the promises of God. Because God actually promises to punish wickedness. God promises to deal with unbelief. God promises that we will not prosper in unrighteousness. You see, God doesn't just promise us all these wonderful good things. He also promises to deal with our sin. And so if we don't get both pieces right, then we kind of walk around this weird place of like, well, I believe all the red letters. I've actually had people say that to me. It's like, Well, I love the words of Jesus. Well, so do I. But that's not all there is to the Bible. Matter of fact, the words of Jesus only make up about 16% of the entirety of the Bible. So the other 84% are not the words actually of Jesus speaking, but it's all the word of the Lord. You better be believing the rest of it. Because it's actually a whole bunch of other people that gave us a lot of information that was spoken to them by the Holy Spirit so that we would know how to live our lives. Notice the result of this. Very important things. Because Joshua is going to act in faith. That's why Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not of faith is sin. If you can't attribute it to faith, it's sin. And... That faith comes by hearing. And the very hearing of faith comes by the word of God. So if you're not reading the word of God and believing the word of God, then you're not increasing your faith. You're not increasing your faith. Then you're liable to be in sin. Notice what he says. And so the Lord routed them before Israel and killed them with great slaughter at Gibeon chasing them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekah. Now, I have stood on top of the walls of Azekah myself personally a number of times. I've been to Maqueda. I've been inside the rampart walls of that city. These are real places that had real people that really fought against the Israelites. These are not made-up names Pottery shirts with the names of these places, tablets with the names of these places in place in the land of Israel tell us that these words are true. These were the real enemies of God's people. And the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven upon them as far as Hezekiah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed by the sword. Now, this is an interesting thing. God promised them the victory, but God spared them from the gory details of battle. God promised them the victory, but God spared them from the gory details of battle. God actually took care of it himself. He was interested in obedience rather than sacrifice. He said, I I want you to, 
to act in obedience. You'll find mercy in obedience. And then Joshua spoke, verse 12, to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said in the sight of Israel, son, stand still over Gibeon. And now here comes this very famous passage that has turned into a Christian myth that the Lord actually stopped the rotation of the earth and our solar system, our sun, and the rotation of the planets for 24 hours. And we'll talk about that in a second. The sun stood still and the moon stopped until the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? We'll cover what this book is in just a moment. And so the sun stood still in the midst of the heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Now remember, there are two ways to understand time. One is in the things that you see, and one is in the things that you don't see. In other words, you're asleep about eight hours a day. You don't see the earth rotating, so you actually don't ever experience the night for very long. You see what happens during the day, and you only see what happens during the day. But if you happen to stay up at night, and you're watching along the ecliptic, which right now is in the southern sky about right there, You can watch as the planets come across and you can see the International Space Station go by every once in a while. You can actually see the movement. And so time is relative to action to human beings. But time is not relative to God because he lives outside of it. Keep that in mind because what is being described here is literally a miracle. And so the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before it or after it. And the Lord heeded the voice of man. For the Lord fought for Israel and Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now, what's the promise? You need to act in faith. I gave you the land. Go take it. Didn't look like it was possible. And so God sends hailstones. He takes care of most of the battle for them. But God also increases their ability to look at this from the standpoint of time. Any of you ever used the expression, man, that seemed like a long day? Or if you're in school, that school year seemed like two years. Or maybe if you're raising a two-year-old right now, today seemed like it was a week long. You know what I'm saying? Our perception of time is very much altered by events, is it not? In other words, your perception of time seems to dictate how you perceive time. Let me give you another example of that. You ever noticed how vacations seem to go by in about one or two days? You're gone for a week, but a work week lasts about two years. That's the perception of time based on your experience in time. God created time for you to have experiences in. God lives outside of time. So from God's perspective, he can stop any day and make it longer or shorter than he wants any time he wants to do that. And so don't misunderstand what's being said here. As they begin to do these things, notice God's strategy God gave them special ammunition. He gave them things that they didn't know that they even had. He wasn't relying on just their swords. They had things available to them. And in the same way, the people of God, the children of God, have things available to them that the world does not know anything about. 
But when we disobey God, when we disobey his will, then those things work against us. Classic example of that is the prophet Jonah. Now, God's the creator of heaven and earth and everything on it. He's the one that commands the animals to be what they are and do what they do. And so Jonah ran into a very large fish. Amen? That fish became a prison until God told him to barf him up on a beach somewhere. So make no mistake, God can use his creation any way he wants to use his creation to get his point across. Notice the powerful prayer that's in this. It was a literal prayer for a miracle. Joshua needed something that swords couldn't provide. Joshua needed extra time. Joshua needed extra men. Joshua needed extra swords. God needed something that we could not imagine can get done by natural means. There was no way that Joshua could fight this fight and do what he needed to do in a 24-hour day as far as a human being is concerned. But when God steps into the, the picture, that's why David said, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen my people begging for bread. Well, the truth of the matter is they had been without, but from God's perspective, God always provides what we have need of. Amen? So, so it ends up in a situation where you had need, but you don't even feel the need because God's in the middle of the situation. You lack the power, but God gives you the strength. Anybody ever been without strength only to have God strengthen you? Any of you ever been sick only to have God heal you? And the doctors say, well, you know, I don't really know what to do. God does. We have to leave miracles in play in our lives, church. I don't know why. Let me just say something to you, and I hope you're not offended. I don't know why there's a single person sitting here or watching online that would ever believe that Jesus Christ could save you from your, the penalty of your sin and wash you and make you white as wool and take you home to heaven for eternity that doesn't believe that God can't lengthen days or create the universe. It makes no sense to me, logically, that someone would believe God can save you but doesn't believe that God can create the universe. Because to me, saving you from your sin and saving me from my sin is a far greater miracle. Amen? It's a miracle. It is a flat-out miracle. Why? Because I'm still a sinner. I still need a Savior. I still need God's grace. I still actively do things. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, that was my flesh. Yes, Jeff, that was your flesh, but I've saved you from it. Hallelujah. Amen? So leave, amen, leave miracles in play in your life because you're going to need them. You're going to need miracles occasionally. You're going to need the God that dwells outside of space and time to do something you can't explain. The truth of the matter is miracles are miracles because they're miracles. How is that so hard for us to understand? They can't be explained. They don't have to be defended scientifically. You know, I had a guy tell me, well, you know, this whole, you know, God created the universe in six little things. I'm like, so you believe, let's just talk about miracles for a second. You believe that somehow all of the life, every bit of it, 
that exists in the universe, which we have been searching for planets that would have life on them now for over 50 years, and we have yet to find one, but you believe somehow 13.7 billion years ago there was an explosion where all of the mass in the entire universe was about the size of a basketball and it blew up. There was no life in the universe as we know it, That explosion created all of the galaxies and star systems and solar systems and planets and all of the matter, all of the mass, all of the material that would make up biologic life. You believe it exploded and somehow without input actually became organized. That chemicals began to organize themselves. And they did so to become proteins, ultimately amino acids, larger molecules. Those molecules became cells. Those cells became systems. Those systems became bodies. Those bodies became animals. Those animals became bigger animals. And those bigger animals became you. You believe that that happened. You have a lot more faith in miracles than I do. Because chemically... Chemicals cannot ever organize themselves. It takes logos. It takes information to do that. And if you believe there is no God, then you have no information. Because information doesn't exist without an intellect. And an intellect has to have something that thinks. So y'all believe in miracles, you just don't know it. Joshua needed a miracle. And I've listened to Christians, I've listened to pastors. Well, you know, and NASA did this. NASA did no such thing. NASA has never proven Joshua's long day. That is a myth. It is a farce. It didn't happen. So please don't blame it on NASA. That started back in the 1800s. It actually started with Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy came up with a theory that somehow the earth could stop and we wouldn't fly off due to gravitational forces. If God did that, he would have to provide the miracle of gravitation to keep us on the earth. So what's the bigger miracle? Just having people think that the day was longer, giving them more time, more sunlight. We don't know how he did it, but he did it. Because if he actually stopped the earth... Big problems, not just for 24 hours. So let God be God. Believe in a God that does miracles. You're never going to go wrong, and nobody's ever going to disprove your miracles because they're miracles. What's the truth of this whole scenario? God can do anything he wants. God doesn't need The laws of physics. God doesn't need the laws of thermodynamics. He has the universe ordered and it works in certain ways, but he himself is quite capable of working outside of the laws that he allows to exist on any given day. Let him be God. Amen? Amen. God simply answered Joshua's prayer. How's that so hard to believe? Two o'clock in the morning, I can read the newspaper in Norway by sunlight. Okay? Just saying, 2 o'clock in the morning, we have friends that live in Norway. 
They like have to have like blackout drapes and blackout windows and blackout because the sun never sets part of the year. So don't worry about these things. Don't get yourself in a tizzy trying to retard the movement of earth. The sun ever stood still like that. The, the amount of damage that would be done to the plates that form the surface of our earth would be monumental because they're partially liquid and partially solid. You'd have liquefaction and gravitational force and mass sliding wonder. It'd be unbelievable what God would have to do to stop that. A whole lot easier to just allow him to be who he says he is. Simplest answer. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Amen? Amen. Jeremiah knew that. I know that. I've watched God bring my son back to life. I've seen God do miracles. It's easy. There's a lot of people in here. Seen, if, if you're here and you used to struggle with drugs and God delivered you, was that not a miracle? Amen? Put your marriage back together. Wasn't that a miracle? People were going, oh, that ain't going to happen. Divorce the bum. And all of a sudden you're going, well, I don't know what to tell you, but our marriage is better than it's ever been. It's a miracle. God simply answers prayer. And he always listens to his kids. Notice the call to Joshua's army. And this is where we're going to start not reading absolutely everything. But here in verses 16 to 28... Joshua meets these five kings and they're hidden and they begin to pile up stones and lock themselves in and do all these crazy things. And, but Joshua says to him in verse 25, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. Now where did we hear that? Uh, chapter 1. That's Joshua's cry. Just be strong. Don't be dismayed. Be of good courage. The Lord is with you. Don't be afraid. The Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. And we see in verse 26 afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. So here are these five kings, five city-states against one group of people who are outnumbered, outgunned. And who wins? The ones who trust in the Lord. That's for you. That's for you tonight. Here's the end of every story. God wins. Amen? That's the end of every story. I I don't know why Christians can't believe that. God wins. Doesn't mean you won't struggle. Doesn't mean you won't have battles. Doesn't mean you won't get wounded. Doesn't mean you won't have injury. It doesn't mean that you're going to have everything go good. Doesn't mean that God's going to give you everything you've ever wanted or asked for. It simply means the end of every story is God wins. God wins. He never loses. The devil never wins. Amen? That's the Christian story. God always wins. The question is, are we helping him win or are we prolonging the fight? Are we prolonging the fight by allowing the enemy to get into our heads? Are we trying to fight with the arm of flesh? Joshua learned a lesson that we need to lay hold of. He knows these five kings are trapped, and so Joshua 
temporarily leads this mopping up operation, goes and slays him. I mean, he does the right thing. But at the end of the day, he's, he's calling his officers, and he's getting them to do all these things. And since he's really kind of showing us a type of Jesus in this, he's a type of Christ, he's basically saying to them, look, the victory of faith is absolute. They that put their trust in the Lord shall never be ashamed. Amen? Amen. I will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. Amen? Amen. Notice what it doesn't say. You're never going to have a problem ever. It just says that in every problem, there's a bigger God than the problem. And that whatever you need, God has more than you need. And wherever you go, the Lord will be there. That's why David said, Lord, where can I go? Where can I hide from you? If I descend into the depths of Hades, you are there. If I rise into the highest heights of the heavens, there you are. Now, church, I want you to understand what Joshua's going through. He's still seeing the fact that they've got real battles and real fights to have, but he's now seeing it through, the Lord's going to take care of this. The Lord's got this. The Lord's bigger than the Gibeonites. The Lord's bigger than the Amorites. The Lord is bigger than the Edomites. The Lord is bigger than, name it, the Lord is bigger. And whatever you have need of, that's why Paul would write, as he writes to the church at Philippi, and my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's who our God is. That's who Joshua's God is. We have to be careful because sometimes we, we have a small God, then we have big problems. If we have a big God, then we have small problems. It's all relative to how you see it. You get to choose that. You can either see a big God and small problems or you can reverse those two things. Truth is, the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? So as you continue this, then Joshua passed on through Makeda, and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. It, these these city-states, that he's just going one right after another. And I'm going to throw up a map here in just a second. And as you, as you look at this, he's dividing and he's conquering. He, he's he's fearless. He's just going from one side of what we would call modern-day Israel, the, the land then that was inhabited by all of these peoples, and he's just going, he's just like, I'm going to go get them, and then I'm going to go get them, and then I'm going to take care of that. He, he's gone from, oh, no, there's giants too. Let's go get them. That is a transition that every believer needs to make. You will not have conquest in your life that is meaningful for the Lord unless you make the choice to say, God is bigger than the boogeyman. Amen? God's bigger than the problems I face. You're going to have very little conquest in your life. You're not going to divide and conquer against the enemy. You're not going to be victorious in the battles that God has you fight unless you're willing to say, I can't, but God can 
Because the truth of the matter is, you're always going to face enemies that are going to be numerically superior. You're going to face enemies that are more powerful. You're going to face enemies when it's relative to you, you're going to find things that are going to challenge your faith. But if you're walking in faith, then God is always bigger than what you face. This is the lesson of Joshua in these chapters. If we leave Jesus as the supreme, then the battle belongs to the Lord. No matter how tangled that web may have become, we, we stand in that promise. This is the victory that has overcome the world. So interesting that John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the one who was a son of thunder initially, right? Hey, I'm going to sit on your right hand. I'm going to be on your left. It's like, yeah. Sun's out, gun's out. Let's do it. He becomes, oh, Jesus. Got his head on Jesus. And he says, this is the one that I love. He writes, this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. Not my guns. Not my sword. Not the army. My faith in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Jesus will do miracles. He's the one responsible for getting us home. Amen? We turn our attention now in the remainder of all of this. And again, I'm going to skim through these passages. You can read them. If, you're, if you can't sleep tonight, read the next two chapters in their entirety. You will not make it. Just turn the lights down low just as much as you need to read and start to skim through all of these cities, and try and say them correctly, okay? Because that's what people do. Well, you know, it's not, it's not Libna, it's Libna. It's not Manasseh, it's Manasseh. And just so you know, it actually is Manasseh. Wage war the right way, not over words, but over the king. Amen? As we go through these next couple of chapters, Joshua's going to summarize this conquest, and he's going to start with the southern cities, going to go to the northern cities. This is the land that the Romans would eventually call Palestine. But as you look at this land, this is largely historical data. So it does form a very important historical backdrop for things like archaeology, for like claiming the land as belonging to national Israel. You know, one of the things that always makes me laugh when I listen to people try and defend this supposed Palestinian sovereignty, number one, the Romans invented the name Palestine. It was called Palestinia Romana. And so it was actually Roman Palestine. It was inhabited by Bedouins. They were the remnants of all these people that Joshua just defeated. They had no land no actual language, no currency. They were not unified, and they didn't have a place that was called their homeland. And so when you talk about the history of the land that is now national Israel, the history of it is entirely Jewish unless you get to about 640 A.D. when Islam comes on the scene. 
And so there is a temple built on the Temple Mount. Why? Because in 70 AD, Titus destroyed the temple just as Jesus said he would. There would not be one stone left on top of another. You travel to Israel today, there's no Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, but there are four mosques. Not one of them is over 1,400 years old. And so when you look at the Temple Mount, you're looking at the history that is underneath the Temple Mount. Now, when you get down there, guess what you find? The Jebusites, the Canaanites. You find Canaanite walls. And so all of these people groups that are named here, you can find a historical link with the people that Israel actually went into the land, conquered them, took that land, what is now over 3,000 years ago. That's more than twice as long as Islam has been in existence. The land of Israel belonged to God. He gave it to Israel. He gave it to the Jewish people. The map of that conquest, and again, you can find, if you have normally a, a fairly modern Bible, you're going to find some of these maps in the back. And I threw these up here just so that you can see. Joshua didn't really have a cohesive plan. If you kind of look at these lines, it's like, okay, we're going to go take care of them, then we're going to go take care of them, then we're going to go back over here. But you will see that basically from east to west, he divided the land. So in the picture that is on your left, on, on this side of the screen, what you're looking at there is the Sea of Galilee, and then a lake that doesn't exist anymore that was in the Hula Valley, which is the base of Mount Hermon. That's the northern part of Israel. The southern campaign, Dead Sea, is on the edge of that picture, and you'll actually see Jerusalem is kind of right at the very top of it. Um, and you're going to see that Joshua first went across the country. He cut off all the support to the northern tribes, whom he's already defeated by going north, descending south, taking care of absolutely every one of the enemies. Then he goes down the Jordan River Valley, all the way down to basically the confluence where the Jordan River enters into the Dead Sea. And then he then cuts back across the country again and then takes the land all the way down to Gaza. So when you hear the term Gaza, it's in your Bible, but it was the land of the Amalekites originally. And then it was inhabited by a group of people called the Anakin. So the sons of Anak the giants that David ultimately is going to slay uh, when he takes care of Goliath. And so there's three things, basically, in all these chapters that we can look at. It was always the Lord that gave him the victory. Remember, this is a ragtag band that spent about 40 years uh, wandering in the wilderness, one of the most desolate places on the planet Earth called the Sinai, which is the land between uh, what we would call the Red Sea, and then the Gulf of Suez. You'll look in there, you'll see this thing. It looks like an anvil. Uh, if you ever get a chance to, to read some of the history of that area, it's a hotly contested place because it's hot. The average mean temperature is over 80 degrees. So when you talk about our deserts here in Southern California, just think of those without any water whatsoever, only rainfall, and no measurable rainfall, basically, of any kind. And so here's this area that they're, they're fighting over. Joshua had obeyed the Lord. He's wiped out the enemy, except for Gibeon. They're now traveling kind of with them. They're kind of like their, their 
water bearers and they're timber cutters and they're seeking firewood and doing those types of things. But Israel, Israel's future, if you remember the story of Moses, when they came to the border of the land, they came to Kadesh Barnea. And remember who they saw. They saw the giants that were in the land. And so Genesis chapter 6 tells us of the story uh, that those people existed then. And if you read that in Genesis 6 verses 1 through 5, now it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the land. And the daughters were born to them, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. Now, this is where, again, the church gets in trouble. We start coming up with fanciful things, and we start making some of these angels and some of them demons and all kinds of wonderful things. I'm here to tell you tonight that these are just really big farm boys. They ate lots of bacon. Remember, they were not Jewish they raised hogs, they were large people, and to somebody who's been wandering through a desert wilderness surviving on manna, they were humongous. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he's also flesh, and nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. So the days of man get established there as 120 by the time Moses ends his life. The numbers of the days of man shall be 70 and 80 if by reason of strength. And so God fixes the length of days of man. And he does so to keep us from becoming increasingly evil. But to those, there were those who were men of old, men of renown, who lived longer and got bigger. And they were called the Anakim. And they're often confused with the Nephilim. I don't believe that they're one and the same because I believe that the Nephilim actually do have a connection uh, with, with angels. But they were men who were really basically twice as large as normal people. It'd be like you walk in and there's Yao Ming, you know, in a whole complete city full of seven foot five, seven foot six inch people, and you happen to be five four. They're going to look like giants. The sons of God, the phrase there appears only in five verses in two books of the Old Testament. Uh, it's found in the flood account. It's also found in the book of Job, and that's really the only place that it is. But it is indicating in almost every historical context that these were just very large people. The book of Numbers uh, says much the same thing. Uh, they were descendants of, the, of Anak. And so since the Old Testament describes the Nephilim both before and after the flood, the Nephilim were uh, a race that could contradict the, the rest of Scripture if we didn't look at them in a little bit different light because they existed before the flood and after the flood. And so there does appear to be a separate group of people that were not, uh, in essence, the sons of Anak, which were just simply giants. Angels are interesting uh, and so when you start combining angels and people, you have a problem. Anybody know what the number one problem with combining angels and people are? There are no, count them, zero, none, not a single female angel mentioned in Scripture. Not one. Why? Because they don't have a gender. Jesus actually tells us that there are neither male nor female and that they don't marry or are not married. And so in that sense, when you talk about anything and angels being put together, 
you're confining it to a very, very serious problem. And that would be angelic beings coming to earth and having sexual relationships with a female human being. It could not be both ways. It couldn't be, you know, they're both attracted to each other. So it could only be for perverse purposes. So they would always be considered evil. So the Nephilim, in that sense, were always a race of people who were evil. The Hebrew word nephal actually means to fall upon or overthrow, kind of giving us a little character and a little bit of view into their nature. But when you talk about demonic or angelic beings, because Christians have speculated about the sons of God being these demonic beings, it, it doesn't appear that that's really the case. Because number one, we would have evidence of them. And number two, we know a lot about angels. Ezekiel 28 describes Lucifer himself as an anointed cherub. And God informs us that Lucifer was a created being. And so when you look at what the Bible says about angelic beings, the hosts of heaven were actually made by God. That means that God still controls them. He would have complete authority over all angelic beings. So now listen to what I just said. That means Satan himself. Satan is a created being. He's not a god. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He does not have unlimited abilities. He can't be everywhere at once. He doesn't know what God is doing. He is not God's equal. He is far inferior to God. But he creates serious problems for mankind because he is absolutely a lot stronger than you are. The other thing that we know about angels Not one single time, never in all of Scripture, do we find angels coming in female form. They always come in male form. I don't know why that is. People have asked me. I can't tell you. I have no idea. Somebody said, well, you know, you should have an answer for that. Well, tell God. (laughs) God put no information in the Bible about why he did that. But I can tell you this, they're not omnipresent either. They're also created beings. So he created a limited number of them, and they are in the spirit realm where we cannot normally see them, but occasionally they do take on physical form. And when they do, it's almost without exception in a way that we would see them as just a a man. For instance, the tomb. Who was sitting on the stone? A couple of dudes. Mary looks up, the gardeners. So don't blow things out of proportion that you don't have an answer for in Scripture. Just trust that God knows what he's doing and knows what he's saying. We don't need to have an absolute answer for absolutely everything. Can demons oppress people? Yes. Can they inhabit believers? Absolutely not. Because greater is, is he who is in you than he who is in this world. You cannot be possessed as a Christian by a demon. Anybody that tells you that you can doesn't know what their Bible says. Period. End of conversation. Can they bug you? Yep. Can they mess with you? Yes. Can they inhabit you? Absolutely not. There is also not a single place in all of the Bible where a demonic force ever inhabited an inanimate object. So stop thinking that your couch is (laughs) demon-possessed. 
that your car has a devil in it. It's always people. And it's always unsaved people. It's people who don't know the Lord yet. Because once they know the Lord, what happens to the demon-possessed man of Gadara? He turns into an evangelist. Right? He's like, Lord, let me come with you. So don't give them more credit than they're due. But don't misunderstand the fact that they're very, very powerful. And so whether they're angels or whether they're demons, we know that God has a plan to deal with them because he created them. And please don't turn to the apocryphal books and those types of things because what you will end up with, uh, for instance, in the book of Enoch, the book of Jubilees, indicate that the Nephilim were fallen angels. I don't know whether they actually were originally or not, but I know this. It also says that they were 450 feet tall. That would be a really tall demon. Okay, so... There's no biblical accounts of any demon ever taking human form, ever, ever. No demon, angels did. There is no biblical account of a demon ever taking human form. So be careful because people get into all kinds of crazy things. So that type of stuff is purely satanic. That's why I don't understand why Christians want to watch you know, movies with demons in them. I don't know about you, but I got enough problems. I don't need that stuff. <laughs> if you were to try and touch an angel, you're, you're likely to have your hand just go right through because they are spirit. They can take on human form. Some conclusions for you. Because the Bible indicates that they do not have a sex, they could not be the sons of God who produce children with the daughters of men. It's impossible. They are asexual. So please don't put that on God. You start having to explain some pretty weird things. It's like, well, God allowed you know, demons that could you know, mate with humankind, and now we have these crazy demonic people. No, that would make God the author of evil, wouldn't it? He's not the author of evil. He is good in his entirety. He's not even capable of looking on evil, much less creating it. So make sure that your theology is solid about these things. Otherwise, you start worrying about things you don't need to worry about. If it's a demon, the one that's inside of you is greater than the demon you face. If it's an angel, it's here to protect you. It's a messenger from God. Sent by the Lord to do his bidding. So just rest. Don't get all caught up in these things, you know. It's like... People send me books all the time. Oh, I finally found... No, you didn't find out. One of the reasons God determined to destroy the entire human race except for eight people is because of the Nephilim. So he wasn't too hip on that whole idea to begin with. And that was before the flood. I can tell you this. They were bad to the bone. Joshua's victory over the Anakim recorded here in chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, and Caleb's victory in chapter 14 uh, indicate that they were rough people. They were very, very, very difficult uh, to take. And so Joshua needed some additional land, and so they were able to fight them, but it was not an easy battle. We're going to see several things happen here as we wrap this up. The northern campaign continues in chapter 11, verses 7 
really all the way through verse 22, ending with the Anakin being defeated. There's a complete victory over the entirety of the land of Canaan. So everywhere that Joshua went, where Joshua let the battle belong to the Lord, Joshua was, was victorious. There's the word for you. Let the battle belong to the Lord, fight the good fight of faith, and even your Anakim will be defeated. Your giants, the things that are big on your horizon, church, the things that when you look at it, it's like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to fight this fight. I don't know what's going to happen. What's really crazy in all of this is in some of the defeats at, like at Hazor, uh, in the northern kingdom, what, what happens is they kind of go through momentary lapses of faith. It's like they're trudging along, they're battling, and this is so like us. Any of you ever had a great victory? It's like we just had this incredible Easter. I can tell you how I got up on Monday morning. It's like, oh, I'm going to die now. It's like, you know, I forgot all about what God did on Sunday because it's now Monday. It's like, the devil hates it when we have victories. And so you're going to come to those places to where you're kind of cruising along. You're on cruise control, spiritual cruise control. Spiritual cruise control is very, very dangerous, church. Don't put your life on spiritual cruise control. You go back to that prayer closet. You get back on your knees. You open up the Bible. You make sure that you're staying in the Word. Absolutely continue in that daily devotional life, that daily prayer life. Because what you see in this book is there are 33 kings that are named in chapter 12. 33 of them. By the time that's happened, they've already fought 18. We're, talk, we're talking 50 major battles that are recorded in these three chapters. And not one of them was easy. Some of them were easier than others, but none of them were without bloodshed. None of them were without battle. Unless you include, you know, the very first one at Jericho, which was really won by the Lord himself. It's like the walls came tumbling down, amen? But other than that, that's your life. That's my life. Jabin, the king of Hazor, hears all these things, and so he gathers this huge army. And so the reason that Joshua was defeated at Hazor is the enemy kind of played a trick on him. I was like, we're going to let you take these other cities. The enemy's going to play some tricks on you too. He's going to let you take some cities. And then all of a sudden, you're going to come up to something you're not prepared for. The only way to get prepared for any and every battle is to be people of prayer, to be people of the word, to walk in the truth to, to make sure that you're doing the word, not just hearing it, but being a doer of it. And so God encourages Joshua in all these things. He's saying, look, as this northern campaign goes on and on, and Joshua and all the people of war with him came up, there in verse 7, suddenly by the waters of Merom, that's, that's up in the north, it's very near the base of Mount Hermon, it's where the Jordan River actually begins to make its trip down the... Jordan Rift Valley, they were chased to, to Greater Sidon, to the brook at Miraspoth. So they, they've been chased all the way down, almost to the Dead Sea. I mean, you're, you're talking 75 miles. And they're, they're losing the whole way. 
But finally, Joshua did to them as the Lord had told them, and he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. He's so busy running from the enemy that he forgets to talk to God again. And he goes, oh, they're using chariots. Maybe we should do something about that. You see, sometimes the picture is this. Sometimes we're so busy fighting people that we forget that the enemy is using other things. The enemy's using your thought life. The enemy's using your television. The enemy's using your friends at work. The enemy isn't just using people to attack you. He's using systems to attack you. He's crafty. That's why Paul would write that. Don't go off and think, you know, well, we, we've got it. We've now had, by the time Joshua gets to Hazor, they've had over 25 victories. You're going to have periods of time where you're going to have victory after victory after victory after victory, and then the enemy's going to mount a major attack. Be ready for that. Going to come against you. We see Joshua fighting with passion, with commitment. And what we really learn from this is basically when we get to chapter 11 and then into chapter 12, they rested. And then they got back to war. They rested, then they got back to war. And they rested, and they got back to war. And they rested, and they got back to war. Sometimes people will ask me, well, what about the Sabbath? You should be taking a Sabbath. Every single week. You should rest. Why? Because you're going to have to get back to war. You should take some time. Physical rest, mental rest, emotional rest, definitely spiritual rest. What we finally see is as Israel has gained victory over all of Canaan. And so chapter 12 is nothing but a list of all of the kings that were conquered. It's mind-boggling when you read it. And it's beautiful with regard to the historical record. By the time Joshua cuts off the Anakim at the, at the mountains, which are the mountains in the central Israel, Mount Carmel, and they push south, you, you see there in verse 23 that finally of chapter 11, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. The promise that was made, the land that was given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their division by tribe, and then the land rested from, from war. And then this list and these are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated, whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising sun to the river Arnon, which is over in modern-day Jordan, to Mount Hermon, which is the border of Syria and Israel today and Lebanon, and all of the eastern Jordan plain, which is everything on the eastern side of the Jordan. It's a very large valley. Half of it is Jordan, modern-day Jordan. A very small sliver of it is Israel and Part of it is what the world calls the occupied West Bank or the West Bank territories, which is the land that the Palestinians uh, claim as their own homeland. It's the land of the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites. But it was given to Israel, and Israel took it and said, this is our land. And so they defeat all of the kings... In all of the kingdoms, the 
Remember that the prophets wrote that the bulls of Bashan would surround Jesus, the Messiah, and they did. They came against him. The eastern lands deeded to Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. That would be in modern-day Jordan. Basically, they didn't come across the... Remember, they stopped at the river. They didn't come with the other nine tribes. But nonetheless, they were all defeated under the leadership. And these are the kings, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12, of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side, on the western side of the Jordan, from Baal of Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, as far as the Mount Halak. So that's all the way up near Sidon and Tyre, to the ascent of Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. The mountain country, the lowlands, the Jordan plain, the slopes, the wilderness. And here they are, the Hittites. They were believed to be a fake people until they found three tablets that actually listed the wars that the Israelites fought against the Hittite people. We now know that the Hittites were absolutely a real people. And guess what? They used chariots and horses. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. When you travel to Israel and you go to the Temple Mount and you're down on the south side of the Temple Mount and you're in the, in the valley that is actually David's, what's called David's Citadel. And you're wandering through the old city and you go through the tunnel that was hewn by the great king Hezekiah. There's an inscription at the end of that tunnel that's attributed to the Jebusites. They were believed to not be a real people until they found, and there is the inscription. And herein lies the well of the Jebusites. Every single time these things occur, it just reminds us of the truth that God's word is true. That what it says it means. And what God did is real. And so that conquest concludes. We'll get to the division of the land next. And the lands of promise given to the tribes. But a beautiful picture here. As every one of these principalities and powers. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? We do not fight against flesh and blood. But against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, of spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, what Joshua found out was the truth that Paul would write. The enemies were many, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And when you fight in him, you have victory over every enemy. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. We'll have some pastors up front afterwards be prayer. Father, we are so grateful. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, the record of this incredible conquest. And we would pray, God, that we would learn from your people. Lord, what it means to follow hard after you and to trust you with every battle. To lean on you for victory. To request of you the things of which we have need to recognize you're a God who still does miracles. And Lord, when those big battles come that we're not prepared for, and maybe we suffer a minor defeat in our life, Lord, that we would remember 
But you're a gracious God. You are slow to anger. You're mighty in compassion. And so, Lord, when we turn back to you and we return to those principles wherein our faith lies, principles of faith, love, and hope, Lord, principles found in your word that you are quick to restore. God, you did that for the Israelites. You'll do it for us. And so we just rest in you. We thank you for your power that is in our lives through Christ Jesus, our Lord, and pray that you would bless us, Lord. Whatever we are facing, Lord, would you go before us? Would you make us strong? For the battle does indeed belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.